Church, open your Bibles. We will be back in the book of First Thessalonians today. And before we read the scriptures, I want to uh, remind you again, I know you heard earlier about the 40th celebration of our church, the anniversary of our church, and uh, it's going to be an exciting day. It's on November the 6th, and uh, we're going to have, obviously, everybody in with us. Kids will be in with us that day, too. I have reason to believe that we're going to have some people that maybe have moved away, but are going to be back with us that day, so there's going to be a kind of an old home feel of that. And one of the things that we would like for you to do is help us with some memories. This you, you don't have an anniversary without remembering back a few years and remembering some significant times of what God has done previously in our church. And, you know, that's scriptural. God is on, uh, telling us all, all the time that we are to remember Him and remember the good things that He's done. So I'm going to do something right now that's probably very dangerous because I'm having you get out your cell phone, but I'm going to give you the QR code and if you'll scan that QR code, you probably won't do that right now for me. You'll just leave it up on your phone and do that after the sermon. But if you pull that up right now and you get that launched, then you'll have the form where you can actually submit some memories that you have of, the, of, of times at CCF. Maybe you'll give a picture if you have it, if you can go back in your archives and find that too. You know, I was thinking to myself, what are some stories that I might want to share? One of the stories that I might even write and put up on the board that we're going to make across the street for November the 6th, if you go over to the ministry center today, which, by the way, the chili's smelling very good, you'll want to be there. If you look at the floor, across all of the floor are scripture, scriptures and prayers uh, for what we hoped would happen in the church almost 20 years ago now. And uh, th those are on the floor everywhere. And we might even post some pictures of that so you'll be able to see that. That's just a cool memory for me about where we were at that time and what we were anticipating God would do when we built the building across the street. Another favorite memory of mine, uh, it wouldn't be CCF if it weren't for family camp. Family camp has got some fantastic memories over all the years. And I will remember, this is no joke, end of July, and we had hail one year. And there was a great story that came out of that. And so, again, that, I, I never thought that would happen in Wenatchee, Washington in July, but it did. And, uh, you know, it's a great memory that came from that. Maybe if you go back a little bit in your mind, you'll say, boy, I remember that night that was really special. Or I remember, boy, I remember that sorrowful time. I, I, that was part of God's movement with us. I remember the person that came to Christ or was baptized. I remember the short-term mission trip. There's lots of things to remember and I'm encouraging you to do that as a spiritual exercise as and also as an encouragement to others. Because when we go across the street and we have that big board up and we're looking and saying, oh, look at the picture of that and look at the memory of that, we're going to glorify God and we're going to thank God for all of his movement over four decades with our church. So if you'll do that, if you'll help me with that, help us with that, I think that it will become a really fast, fantastic day and another memory for us about when we commemorated God's good work with this. All right, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I have titled this sermon series, Flourishing. And I've given that name because, well, that's what the church in Thessalonica was doing. They were flourishing. And again, it was amidst a lot of persecution and adversity, which makes their story an even better one. Because it was just not an easy road for them. It was a hard road for them. And yet they were still a church that was flourishing. I know that all of us want to have relationships with people in which we demonstrate to them what Christ is really like. And we help people to grow in Christ. We want to have relationships that are like that. We want to have relationships that are like that with our families, 
We want to have relationships that are like that with our work or our school or our neighborhoods. And flourishing influence is what today's passage is all about. By that, I mean the influence that you have with other individuals around you, much like Paul had with the church in Thessalonica. You have those kinds of relationships, maybe not in the same way, but in some level of influence that you are exercising with others. I'm going to get into that in just a minute, but I think we would be, do well to remember a little bit of the history of what's going on here, because we may want to dial in why this letter was written in the first place. We covered a little bit of this last week, but I want to reiterate some this week. And I've got the map up here of where Paul started. He was sent from Antioch, made his way around. In Troas, he got a vision. He was thinking he was going to go down south more towards Ephesus, Ephesus at that time, but the Spirit came to Paul in a vision and said, I want you to go over to the Macedonia region. And so Paul was obedient and he did that. Guess what? Almost immediately you'd think, boy, I'm following God's will. It's all going to go great. Well, guess what happens in the very first city he shows up in is there's this gigantic uproar when these, some people come to know Christ and they're hearing about his message. There's a gigantic uproar. He and Silas are uh, in, uh, jailed and they're beaten with wooden rods and publicly shamed. And this is happening. I mean, you think, why? I'm in the middle of God's will, right? Well, yeah, you are. And this adversity is happening in the city of Philippi. What's worse is they didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen. What they did was illegal to do with a Roman citizen. But he kind of lets them off the hook and is like, you know, I'm just going to leave and go to the next city. You think the next city, Thessalonica, would be easier. But as we discovered last week, it was not easier. There's more problems that are surfacing there. Jason is jailed there. And Paul's like, you know, uh, we've got things started and off the ground here, but we better leave and go on to the next city. And so he leaves this little fledgling church, and he's wondering kind of what happens with it. He sends Timothy back. Timothy comes back to Paul and says, you're not going to believe it. These guys are doing fantastic. And so he writes the book of 1 Thessalonians to them in order to offer an encouragement and to offer a level of perspective on what has exactly happened when he arrived and what's happened with them today. Now... Here's the other thing that has happened in this letter, and this is some of the backdrop. There are some individuals that are coming to the church right now, and they're saying to the church, you know, I I can't believe that Paul took you in like that. I mean, he hoodwinked you. I mean, this guy's little more than a rebel rouser, and you believed his message. I can't believe it. So they were slamming him, and Paul was saying, I've got to respond to a little bit of the things that people are saying that I've done there with you, and I've got to respond to you and make sure that you understand, again, how we came to you and what the whole situation was like. And so that's what he does. He reminds them of the details in this passage we're going to read today about his visit with them, what it was like, and what it wasn't like. Maybe he's answering some of the critics right now, too. And so he's saying, I want to remind you about my visit with you and how we came to you. All right, that's picked up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this is the way Paul writes it. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, we just learned that from the map, they were beaten with wooden rods and jailed there. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, 
nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not become a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Lord, we are praying that this episode that happened with the church in Thessalonica might be instructive to us about how we are to exercise influence with people around us. So take these words now, make them very practical in this modern day. Although they're 2,000 years old, they never wear out in value. That's just the nature of your word. And so use it in our lives today to have your way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are coming into an election cycle. Oh, joy, right? And if you watch any level of TV, you know that we are in an election cycle because it seems like right now every other commercial is about some candidate for election. And by the way, have you noticed it's gotten really dark? I mean, I think there's a lot more mudslinging this time around than I can remember in the past. That's always true of politics, but I don't know. I just feel it a little bit more this time around. Here's what we will always know about politicians and the political cycle. Politicians will always promise things, big things. They'll promise to heal the economy. They will promise to stop crime. They'll promise to provide jobs. And usually, they almost always promise promise more than they can deliver. Politicians typically are involved with what we might call lip service. Lip service is giving verbal support to things that, well, maybe they can't completely you know, control or they can't completely deliver in real life. The, this is what Paul's telling the church in Thessalonica is he's telling them, I need for your lives to be more than mere lip service because lip service is cheap. Anybody can give lip service. If you want to have an impact in the people's lives around you, if you want to exert influence with the people around you, your life has to be characterized not simply by lip service, but life service. You have got to give your life in order for there to be an impact. The Bible has all kinds of warnings in it around people who say a lot of things but do very little. In fact, uh, there's accusations against the Pharisees especially because they were individuals that had a lot of things that they heaped up on the backs of others, but they themselves never really intended to do much about it at all. And the scriptures all the time are talking about saying things but not following through on them. You got to give more than just words. You've actually got to give actions. You've got to give life service, not just lip service. The passage today is very appropriate for pastors and Christian leaders. And I read this list of things in this passage today that I'm going to preach to you. They're applying to me. And by the way, they're a tall order. 
I mean, there are a lot to accomplish, and there are things that you should be, again, holding me and other leaders of the church accountable for in the things that I'm about ready to bring to your attention to. But we're not the only ones as Christian leaders that are responsible for this. Anybody who has a level of influence somewhere is also responsible for the things that we're going to find out in the scriptures today. For instance, maybe you are a grandparent and you've got little grandkids. The things that we're going to hear today about your influence is appropriate there. Maybe you've got some individuals that work that you supervise. Your level of influence is going to be talked about here today and how to exert that influence in a very positive way for Christ. Maybe you're involved in a team at school or you're involved in a club and some aspect of society. Your influence is being felt there. And the things that I'm going to say today are going to apply to you if you've got influence anywhere in life. You are called today to have life service, not just lift lip service. And that's what we're going to explore. The passage breaks down in two ways today. First of all, Paul says these are the things we did not do. So these are the things that are negative things and these are the things we didn't do. We might be accused of them, but I'm going to tell you we didn't do those things. And when I bring those to your attention, Church in Thessalonica, you're going to agree those were not the ways that we came to you. The second half is the positive things. And he says these are the things you are called to do, things you're not to do, things you're called to do. That's the way the passage breaks down today. And I've got several in each of those categories. I'm going to start off where Paul starts with the negative things. These are the things you're not to be categorized as, or these are the ways you're not supposed to come in relationship to others or influence with others. And he says, these are the things I don't want to have a, a part of my life and not a part of your lives. He says, the very first one is deceit and trickery. Verse three, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And it was very common for traveling speakers at that time to come and enter a city and just want their own benefit. I mean, they would say anything in order to gain their own benefit. They would say exactly what people wanted to hear. There was always a temptation, there always is even today, to say things that are a positive or appealing, things that we think people will really want to hear. And when you're explaining the gospel even to somebody, to maybe want to shade it into that direction of what people really want to hear. In fact, Paul later, book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, so this is much later in Paul's ministry. In fact, this is near his death. He comes to Timothy and he says this, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so there's always this temptation in order to couch the message of the gospel into the terms that you want it to be in and not to really preach the scriptures, but to, but to shave some things off here and there in order to make it sound more appealing. And that's always a temptation, but Paul says we stay a country mile away from that. Maybe you need an example of that. And Denise and I have an example of that from the time we visited the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And they had a Bible on display. I'll, I'll show it to you in just a minute. They had a Bible on display in which a group of well-intentioned Christians took large sections of the scriptures out of this translation of the Bible that they were going to give to a group of people. Let me tell you what they took out. They took out the entire book of Exodus and anything related to the freedom of, of the Egyptians or the Israelites from the Egyptians. They took out the entire book of Revelation. They had entire sections of the scriptures that they pulled out of the Bible that they printed and why would they do that? 
Well, because it was a Bible that were, they were creating for Negro slaves. And they wanted no hint that there was any idea of freedom. Sure, you can have spiritual freedom, but when it comes to like earthly freedom, well, we're going to take that out of the scriptures. Here is the display that is at the Bible Museum. And it's got, you know, all kinds of verses there that were taken out. It's got verses that were, uh, uh, you know, here it is. Uh, the total number of uh, verses, the slave Bible is missing approximately 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. I mean, this happened. This is, this is American history right now. And I, the year was 1807, I believe, 1808, somewhere around there. And it's an example of what, you know, we just can't be about. You can't shave the message that way to accomplish your purposes. It's wrong, and God's the one to, to judge that. So again, deceit is not something that we do. I love what Mike Iaconelli, he's, a, uh, he's passed now, but uh, it was one of the things that he did uh, was, was lead a lot of youth ministry. And he says, let's decide to stop trying to convince the world that Christianity is true because Jesus makes us prettier or happier or thinner or wealthier or bigger more successful, more popular, healthier, stronger, more influential. He says, do we actually believe that the world is impressed with any of this? And the answer, that's no. That, that's not the foundation of our message. And so we don't come with any level of deceit or trickery when we are delivering the message of God to others. And that's where he begins. All right, let's move on. He says, also, flattery. We never came with words of flattery. And, you know, flattery is something in which is giving, you know, words of encouragement to somebody else. That's not a wrong thing. But if you're giving words of encouragement to somebody in order to butter them up for an ulterior motive, well, that's when flattery starts to go uh, off the deep end. We've all felt words of flattery from other people. In fact, it happens regularly when we want something or when somebody wants something of us. In fact, you're in the store, maybe you're buying a dress, and the, the, the sales clerk will say, oh, dress is just adorable on you. You look so good in that. You know, what's she saying? Well, she's saying, you know, I want you to buy it because I want the commission for it. Uh, you're buying a car. Oh, leather was just meant to be yours. Oh, the leather on you, that's just awesome. You know, so you experience that and you say, you know, kind of flattery is kind of happening right now. Dad, you are the best dad ever. Can I borrow the keys? You know, that, it's usually something that's coming after that statement. And so we're all fairly uh, astute of when that's happening. I love what Hank Ketchum says. He was the creator of Dennis the Menace. You remember that cartoon years ago? And he's got this quote, flattery is like chewing gum. Enjoy it, but don't swallow it. And it's just, it's just a great quote and a great reminder that flattery is something that, well, it can't be a part of any sincere kind of message. Now, again, is it appropriate to encourage others? Yeah. That's a good thing to encourage other people, but do it with sincerity, not because you have something that you want to get, get out of it. And certainly don't use flattery just because you want people to like you or you want people to like the message of Jesus. They don't need to be flattered in that way in order to come to know the gospel or come to know Jesus. And so that stays away from the way that we approach people. The next one, this is a big one for me. I'm going to tell you why, but it's greed. And he says, nor did we come with the pretext for greed. In the ancient times, again, traveling preachers were predominantly supported by the individuals that they went to visit. 
And so they were always looking for a monetary response from what the message was that they gave. And many times they were, you know, they thought, wow, if this will get a better response, then, you know, this is the message that we'll give. We'll change the message in order to make sure that it yields the, the best response financially that we could get. And this is something that, again, Paul says, you know, this was not our intent at all. In fact, we worked very hard in order to make sure not to become a burden on you because we didn't want this to be about finances. You're very well aware today that there is a thing in the United States and now circled the globe called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is anchored predominantly in this idea that if you're a Christian, you should be wealthy. In fact, it, it's kind of usually exercised like this. First of all, Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. So if you are in Christ, Christ came to free you from poverty, and you know, your spiritual poverty is what the Bible is pretty much talking about regularly, your blindness spiritually. But they're saying, oh, no, 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 this extends. And if you are in Christ, you shouldn't have any form of, of earthly poverty, no, no lack of finances. And so the atonement covers over that area. Christians give in order to gain material wealth from God. So you give because you expect something to come back. And third, faith is self-generated, and it's a force that leads to prosperity. So if I don't have prosperity, chances are good. It's just because I haven't willed it to be. And so I should be just exercising all of this spiritual energy, faith, in order to be able to become a wealthy person. And again, it's just a, it's a, it's a tangled disturbing side of, of what they're trying to do around the world. So many times they're doing it in parts of the world that are uh, poor already. One of the stories I read this week on the prosperity gospel is that in Africa, there was these guys that came into a church and began to kind of take control of it. And they would ask people to give seed faith, quote unquote, of $200 in order to exercise their faith and start the path to prosperity. This was in a city where people made normally $150 a month, and they were asking them to give $200. And people were, were wildly doing it because they, well, wanted the message of being wealthy. I'm sickened by it because it's a distortion of the gospel, the real gospel. And if you'll notice, anywhere where the prosperity gospel goes, there is a very poor view of affliction, a poor view of suffering. The scriptures talk regularly about suffering and we suffer with Christ in order that we might inherit his eternal glory with him. That's part of the gospel is this idea of suffering and anywhere where the prosperity gospel goes, that's minimized. Anywhere where the prosperity gospel goes, this aspect of struggle in life is minimized. And in fact, if you're struggling in life, it's probably because you just don't have enough faith. And so automatically, they're just piling on people and hurting people with the distorted view, again, of what the gospel really is. And it makes me angry, actually. I don't normally do this, but today I'm going to name some names. And I'm going to do that in order that if you're ever coming across these individuals, you'll say, wow, prosperity gospel, I need to stay away from that. Here are some very famous people in America today that you probably could already surmise that they probably fit in that category. But Benny Hinn. Creflo Dollar, by the way, the name gives it, gives it away all by itself, right? Creflo Dollar, come on. Uh, Jesse Duplantis, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland. Uh, uh, you know, again, those people have typically some very large presence on TV, sometimes on radio. And those are individuals that fit this category of being uh, prosperity gospel people. Now, again, 
Not to say that it's all just men. There are some women that are also a part of this. And one I want to bring to your attention today is Paula White. She was speaking with a group of women and actually said this. Anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. It's like, hmm, who was it that told us to deny ourselves? (laughs) Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That was Jesus himself. It's like, it just doesn't get any whacker this. And here was the deal. It's reported that as she said that and as she gave her talk, people gave a, a standing ovation. And I'm just like, this is just so far off and it's so far away from what God wants for us. And so I'm, I'm calling you today to not fall for this and I'm calling you today to not let that become a part of your message. <laughs> we're, we're not promising any people any financial gain from becoming Christians. We're promising them a whole lot of things that are beneficial to their lives. It's a good thing. When Christ comes and takes up residence, newness starts to form on the inside of us. And who knows, there could be some financial uh, opportunity ahead for you, and that would be great. But that's not the primary message of the scriptures. It's about God reorienting, forgiving us, and giving us health in so many ways, starting with him. And so again, I'm hoping that, again, that's rested with you, and that uh, as you're telling others about Christ, that's the main purpose of it. All right, there's one more thing. And he says, we did not seek praise from men. And here he's saying that there were people that were traveling around at the time and all they wanted was honor and prestige and fame. And it was possible at that time if you're a good philosopher, a good orator, you could become a rock star. And so he's saying that's not what we came to do. We did not want to get the honor of men more than we wanted the honor of God. It's easy to become a people pleaser. Uh, To desire to get the approval of men more than the approval of God is always knocking on the door of all of us And anytime you're in a relationship with somebody else and you want to tell them about Christ, that's one of the things you're always evaluating is what's this going to do to our relationship? And do I care more about our relationship and you liking me than I do about what God wants me to do? And that's always perking underneath. Let me give you an example here of the idea of people pleasing. Sports fans around the world can rely on one fact about their sport. The home team wins more often than the visiting team. This is a 2011 Sports Illustrated article that says... Home field advantage is no myth. Indisputably, it exists across all sports at all levels, from Japanese baseball to Brazilian soccer to the NFL. The team hosting a game wins more often than one that doesn't. What explains this? A wealth of evidence disputes the most common theories behind the home field advantage. For instance, thousands of cheering or jeering fans didn't change a team's performance. I know that's really sad for the 12s to hear that because we think that we influence games all the time. But the stats say it's not true. Here's what they did. They went and looked at volume in a stadium, for instance, to see if it changed the volume or, excuse me, the speed of a pitch. Or they looked to say, did it change the number of free throws that people made? And they said sound or noise didn't have an influence in that way. What were some other things that were commonly thought of ways that would influence the home team? Uh, What about the team that has to travel a long distance? And so their travel is making them fatigued. They said, nope, that didn't end up being a factor. Also wasn't the familiarity of the home team with their stadium or with all the things that were in their city. That didn't seem to make a difference, at least according to the study. And so what gives over to home field advantage? According to Sports Illustrated, Officials' bias is the most significant contribution to home field advantage. In short, 
the refs don't like to get booed. So when the, when the game gets close, they will call fewer fouls or penalties against the home team, or they'll call more strikes against the visiting batters. Larger and louder fans really do influence the calls in the officials. The refs naturally, and sometimes even unconsciously, respond to the pressure from the crowd against their disapproval. In the end, the ref's people-pleasing response can have an impact on the final result of the game. And you know what? I think that's right. And we're all human. We don't want to be hated. We don't want to be booed. And that goes all the way down to the level of a referee. And in fact, this week, I think I just saw that there was a gigantic... uh, turmoil that happened, a a, a stampede that happened at an Indonesian soccer match. And, you know, I can't remember how many people died, a bunch. And the referees, they had to like, you know, get a whole phalanx of police around them just to escort them out of the stadium because it was so tense. Why do I bring that up? Well, there's always something perking on the inside of us that wants to be liked. And that is always something that we're going to battle against. We have to come to the space of saying, Lord, I want to honor you even more than I want to be liked. So would you come in and just give me your love, give me your power? I'm not trying to hack people off, but the message itself does that at times. And I just have to be okay with that, that everybody's not going to like me if I'm telling them your message. Everybody's not going to like me if I'm a follower of you. They hated you first, so they're going to hate me also at times. All right, pleasing people Uh, has to be something, excuse me, uh, this idea of pleasing people has to be something that we put it off to the side and say we want to love and honor God more. All right, those are the four things that he starts off with and says, these are the things that should not be a part of you exerting influence. Let's turn the corner and go to the spot that is, these are the things that should exert your influence. And he says, uh, all of them start off with something, our metaphor, it's something like this, he says. Let's act like this. And there's three of them. So the first act like this is, he says, I want you to act like a nursing mother. If you've ever seen a nursing mother, you know the level of tenderness and love that is expressed just by the holding of that baby by a mother. Young mothers give up their lives for their babies. And Paul says, you know, we could have come to you and been a burden upon you. We could have demanded a whole lot of things. We were apostles after all. But we didn't, and we came to you instead like a nursing mother caring for her children. And if you look at that, a nursing mother is feeding her child, she's clothing her child, she's cleaning her child, her child she's cleaning her house for her child, she's buying things at the store and the market for her child. All of these things that she's doing because that's what a child needs, and that's the level of care that she's willing to give. If you want to be used by God, you've got to show people that kind of love. It's Love like a caring mother for a baby. A five-year-old Colorado boy's playtime turned into a traumatic escapade when he encountered an unexpected playmate, a mountain lion. The child was playing outside with his brother when his mother heard the sound of screaming. She rushed outside to find a mountain lion on top of her son, and her son's head was inside the mouth of the lion. But the mom was ready for a fight. According to the local deputy, she was able to pry the jaws of the cat open and free her son. Both mother and son received minor injuries but are now in good shape thanks to the heroic actions of this mother. Here's what I want you to hear about our influence 
is oftentimes when we're coming like a caring mother, it's coming with a whole lot of like forbearance. I mean, we've got to just keep doing this again and again. But it comes with a level of grit. And that mother had a level of grit to say, not my baby. And so she was willing to go to great extents in order to save her child. And many times when we are exerting influence over the lives of others around us, that's the kind of care that we have to give to them. All right, here's the next one. He says, like a hard worker. Verse 9, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. And in the ancient world, everybody had a trade. And so the trade was uh, something you learned at usually adolescence or, or late childhood. And you were uh, learning how to do a certain skill. And if you learned how to do that skill, that's what allowed you to serve society, but it also allowed you to make an income. Paul had a skill that he learned, and the skill was tent making. It would be the equivalent today of many blue-collar jobs like, again, plumbing or electrician or drywalling or concrete work, all of those things, valuable things for our society. And Paul was in that camp. He made tents. Oftentimes, he probably even sold those tents to the Roman army, and he was an expert at tent making. And he said, I have this dual responsibility. I have this responsibility of caring for you, church, oftentimes, but I also have this other job of tent making, and I'm going to do both of those so that I can not be a burden to you, but bring the gospel to you. And so I'm going to take this responsibility of working very hard. Now, again, I want to bring to your attention the elders of our church because I'm paid to be good, and and they are good because they just want to. And there's many times in which they, uh, they, they have late nights, and they're praying for you late nights. They're returning an email, a phone call at late and odd times over the weekend when they probably would prefer to do other things. But they are doing that because they are willing to do the hard work of what it takes in order to be the gospel, to share the gospel with all of you. The next time that you are maybe outside and it's like a neighbor needs some help and it's like, ooh, do I have the time for that? Oh, I don't know if I want to do it. I'm praying that this passage will come to your attention and you are called in your influence to actually have hard work. Hard work that makes a difference in people's lives. And that's something that is good and right for us to do. All right, there's one more. And he says, I want you to be like a father, verse 11. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. To be exhorted means to give instruction and insight to somebody. If you are encouraging them, you're giving them sympathy and concern. Oftentimes, it's somebody that has suffered a tragedy, and you're coming alongside them in order to be an encourager to them. And if you're charging somebody, you're insisting that they follow a certain path. Dads sometimes get like that, and they say, nope, it's going to be done this way, and there's times in which that's appropriate to be done. No, I want you to take this course of action And so when we're like a father, we're guiding people, we're helping them understand how to do something, we're joining them in difficult times. If you want to make an impact in people's lives, at times you need to act like a dad that's encouraging your children all the way to the finish line. And I've realized being a dad, I've got older children now, you're never done being a dad. You're always involved in encouraging them to continue on in the fight, the fight of faith and the fight of life. And you're just continuing them to encourage uh, in, in, in completing that, that course and that path in their lives. All right. Paul has urged the church in Thessalonica to remember everything about what happened when he first visited them. He urged them and said, you want to be people who are doing the right things with the right motives. 
I want you to be people who are giving life service, not mere lip service. And he told us the ways not to go about that and the ways to go about that. And as we end this story today, I want to bring something to your mind and your attention that I learned about recently. And it's kind of a fascinating story for me. It's a funny story for me. During the pandemic, you know, we all work very hard to keep our bodies going. Maybe there are times in which we diet in order to make sure that our bodies are going right. Maybe we make our way to the gym or we run or we have some sport that we do. We, you know, to, to put it short, we're always fighting the flab and so we're always trying to make sure that we're doing something to kind of keep our temples in order. Well, these guys had the bright idea of saying, you know, maybe there's a way to shortcut all of that. Maybe what we could do is we could tattoo a six pack on our bodies. <laughs> and I've got pictures here of two six-packs that were tattooed on. There they are in all their glory. Can you imagine coming out of the water at family camp with that? (laughs) Would that be awesome? Yeah, I I got $50 for James if he'll do that for us. (laughs) Maybe somebody else has 50 bucks for him too. I mean, this could end up being very lucrative. I get out of the shower, honey, what do you think, you know? Uh, here, Here it is. At my age and with my body, that's probably my only hope, actually. You know, so I, I, I just know that. Why do I bring that to your attention? Life service has no shortcuts. It's, it's not as easy as just a tattoo. You have to do the hard work. And life service is what God honors. It's what he calls for. It's the life that he empowers. It's the life that God wants for all of us. And I'm hoping that that moves you like it moves me, that God's saying, you know what? It's gonna take some of my effort in you, but it's gonna take some of your effort joining me in order that you might lead a life that's worthy of the gospel and that you might exert that kind of influence in people's lives that makes a real lasting difference. Would you join me in being people of life service, not lip service? Lord, thank you again. Your passage, your words, your scriptures just keep on flooding over us again and again. And they just keep on tilling up all of the ground that needs to be tilled up in order that we might see the true path, who you really are, and how we follow you and how we explain to others around us why you're so important to us. Lord, Would you help this church to be a church of life service? That's what we want. We don't want to just look good. We want to be people who are good and who make a difference in this community and make a difference in all the relationships that you've given to us. We humble ourselves before you today, Lord. We thank you that this is not something foreign to you. You did it before you called any of us to do it. Thank you, Lord, that you came to give your life as a ransom for many. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, our Savior.